Hi, everybody. My name is Pat Hogarty, and welcome back to California Real Estate Principles, Real Estate 300. This happens to be show number five. And uh, a couple things that I want to mention to you before we get started. Again, as you know, we're recording this uh, show for future use, but I do want to tell you that we have uh, encoded and uploaded uh, show number four. We did that this past weekend. I sent an email out to everybody that we had done that. Also, I had put an announcement up on the Blackboard website. So you kind of want to keep an eye out for that. That's the way that I'm able to keep in contact with you, let you know that uh, when we upload the shows. Uh, You should be now, for this particular class at least, you should have uh, been reading the chapters. You should have already downloaded the study guide that I keep talking about over and over and over again. This happens to be as close to what you're going to see on the exam as possible. Uh, Students that are in my class typically usually, even so I know it's 100 questions, usually come in and have that exam done in about 20 to 25 minutes at the most. That's 100 questions. And uh, I expect you all to be getting as close to 100 as possible. We really don't like to see people get, you know, like, you know, low 90s and stuff. That's not any good. I want to see you, get, you know, getting 100 on the test. And there's really no reason why you shouldn't. Uh, you're able to look it up. You're able to look the answers up, uh, you know, and you should be able to do really well with it. The second thing that I want to mention to you is that you should have, and I'll keep reminding you, you should have gone to... Um, The Blackboard website, you should have gone under course materials, and you should have looked at for that project, which is the uh, professional interview. Don't let the cart or don't, don't, uh, you know, you should be working on that now. You should be contacting somebody, an agent that's in the business. Uh, Don't be afraid. They won't bite. You can stop by uh, somebody that's at an open house on a weekend, or uh, you could stop by an office and just say hi. Just you walk in, you're honest. You just say hi. My name is Joe Smith. I attend Sacramento City College. I'm currently enrolled in a real estate principals class, and the instructor asked me to go out and meet some people that are in the uh, that are in the real estate field and write a short little two-page report on what I found out. And I've also got there some questions for you to ask. And as I've mentioned before, what's really important is the fact that, you know, if you're going to be investing time and effort into taking uh, courses, educational courses in real estate, I think it's probably a good idea for you to find out a little bit about what it's about by talking to people that are in the industry. And again, it could be somebody that's in sales, uh, such as a real estate agent, a real estate broker. It could be a real estate appraiser, somebody that lends money. It should be in an area in which you feel is an area that you would possibly like to work in in either now or sometime in the distant future. So with that, uh, I think that's enough of our housekeeping things that we need to take care of. I do want to, what we're going to be doing tonight is talking about something called landlord and tenant. The reason why we did this, as I've mentioned during the course orientation and even several times after that, is that, you know, we start out in the beginning and we talk about, you know, just about what real estate is about, you know, in other words, what's real versus personal property. That was the first couple lectures. And then we moved on from there and we talked about something called encumbrances, I think, if memory serves me correctly. And that was kind of important, a little bit more about real estate and, you know, what was personal property and what was real property and how do you transfer it, uh, how do you title it, things like that. What we want to do now is the reason why we're doing landlord and tenant is because we feel at this point, I personally feel, that this is probably in most cases your first exposure into you as an individual getting involved in real estate. 
In other words, maybe uh, if you're young and you've been living at home, you've been living with your parents, and finally the day comes and the parents are either going to throw you out or they are going to ask you to move out or you're going to get tired of the rules and you're going to want to move out on your own, and what you're going to do is because you don't have the money to buy a house, you're going to probably either rent an apartment on your own or you're going to go together with a friend and rent an apartment. And so this is going to be your first experience to dealing with real estate, if you will. So what I'm going to do is go over. I'm going to start with some general terms. I'm going to be bouncing back and forth here between uh, explaining something on the document camera, pages from your book, and then coming back and talking to you. Uh, what we want to do is uh, I'm going to move over there now. What we want to do is start talking about a few of the terms, if you will, just so that you're familiar with it. When we're talking about a landlord, a landlord, keep in mind, is the person that actually owns the property. That's the person that owns it. Their name is on the title. Okay. Usually what we talk about is the term. We call them the landlord. We can also call them the owner of the property. Uh, another term we may call is we may call them the lessor. So from a lease perspective, a rental perspective, that person is called the lessor. Now, this or becomes important because if you think back to when we talked about a grantor, you know, that was the person that was owning it and transferring it to somebody. A lessor is somebody that owns it is going to rent it to somebody called, guess what, a lessee. So we start to see a few of these words. If we step back a little bit and look at the forest from the trees, we start to say, you know what, when we hear these ors, it looks like they're associated with somebody that owns the property or, or something, and the E's t tend to be somebody that's going to buy it, you know, uh, or or uh, lease it. Okay, so just kind of keep that in your mind as you're going through, because you hear these ors and E's. I'm not saying it uniformly works that way, but it helps to kind of keep that in mind. A lease, uh, the person that's leasing it is called a lessee. Okay, sometimes we refer to them as the tenant. Okay, we talk about the tenants that live in the place. We can also talk about the lessee. Okay. A um, couple things that we want to do and make sure that we emphasize here is that a lease is a contract for a set time. In other words, when we enter into a lease, we have sat down with that person, if we're the tenant, and we've sat down with the landlord, and we do, we've agreed to what day we are going to move in, and we've agreed to how long we're going to be there, and we have agreed to what day we're going to move out, and we've agreed to that all in advance. And we'll talk about that because one of the things with a lease agreement is it has a definite beginning and a definite ending period of time. And unlike a rental agreement, a lease does not require a formal announcement from either the landlord or the tenant that the agreement is coming to the end. In other words, it's not where the landlord has to call up 30 or 60 days ahead of time and say, oh, by the way, I want to remind you that in two months you need to get out because the contract had the beginning and had the ending date, unlike a rental agreement. A rental agreement has a different set of rules that apply, but a lease has a beginning and an end. Okay? Um, so a lease is where something has a beginning and an end. A rental agreement is something usually that we're doing on a monthly basis in most cases. But there are rental agreements that will go for less than a month. For example, you will find if you drive around Sacramento in certain areas, you will find that there are places that will rent rooms or apartments or townhouses or condominiums, and they will rent them maybe on a week-to-week -week basis or every two weeks. Okay, and the reason why they do that is if you if the reason why a lot of them do that is we have a lot of people that come to our town, and maybe they're a good example would be somebody that's in the construction business. 
And they're going to be in town for four, five, six months, and at the end of that period of time, they're going to leave because maybe they're a crane operator and they work a great big crane to build a bridge. And their skill set is only used in towns that want to build great big bridges. <laughs> and so what they do is they work here for six months, and then they maybe go someplace else. And what they want to do is they want to have their own place. Uh, you know, maybe this uh, this week-to-week rental is going to supply furniture, unlike an apartment, whereas an apartment you move in, you may find out on an apartment, typically, typically, they're usually rented out without furniture. Now, there are some furnished and there are some unfurnished, but in a lot of cases, you know, it's it usually comes unfurnished. So the people that will come to town that are going to work on construction, uh, in fact, when I was at McClellan, we used to have a lot of contractors, engineers that would come out and work on a project for three, four, five months, and then they would leave and go someplace else. And they would also do the same thing. They would rent maybe something on a weekly basis because they weren't sure when the contract was going to end or whatever. And usually what they'll do is they'll look for someplace that's going to be week to week so they can cancel it fairly easily or end it, I'm sorry, end it fairly easily. They're not into some long-term obligation. They're looking for having a refrigerator and a chair to sit in and a bed to sleep on. And, uh, you know, all they really have to do is supply, you know, the food to eat, and that's it. So those kind of uh, things are around. And then, again, you can also have on a day-to-day basis. So there's a lot of different types of rental, if you will. Okay. So just kind of keep that in mind when you're working with uh, with rental and lease agreements. Okay. I think this page right here, uh, let me see. This one here starts talking about the different types of leases. I'm going to kind of, I keep saying that, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about what they are, and I'll show you where the narrative part in the book is about this. First one is a state for years. That lease can go anywhere from a year to 99 years. There are certain kinds of agricultural leases. Now, the other thing you have to keep in mind when you talk about leasing is to open, think beyond a single-family home or a condo or a townhouse. Leases can be, for example, farmers can turn around and lease agricultural land. In fact, sometimes when you talk to a farmer, you may find out that that farmer only owns maybe 50, 60, 70, 100 acres. And what they do is they may raise a particular crop, whatever it happens to be. It could be corn, could be rice, well, you know, I mean, you know, could be tomatoes, could be anything. And they may only own 40 or 50 acres of that, but what they also do at the same time, if they feel that the marketplace is pretty good and they want to take the chance and they think the weather is okay, what they'll do is they'll maybe lease the neighbors 40, 50, 100, 200 acres, whatever, whatever number of acres it is. And during that period of time, that what they'll do is they'll raise crops on that acreage. And then what gives them an ability is that, that, that if in the slower years, they can turn around and, and, if you will, not unlease, but not lease it, okay? You do the same thing with ranch land, you know, for grazing purposes, where you're grazing horses and cattle and, you know, stuff like that, where you may graze animals on that property. So agricultural will do that. And then there's also leases, too, that you can have where maybe you're going to have a building that you want to build, you don't want to put the money out to buy the property, you'll build the building, and maybe you have in your mind when you build it that eventually you're not going to have a need for that anymore. For example, on a short side, is that I could possibly turn around and be a large company like a Home Depot and say, you know what, I don't want to buy the land. I'd have too much money tied up with my capital in the land. So what I'm going to do is I'll just go ahead and lease it. I'll lease it for 30 years. 
with the option, I'll have the option to renew it if I want to. And what I'll actually do is go out and build the building. And what I kind of think about at that time is, is, is that our concept is, is that Sacramento area may be growing quite a bit and maybe I'm going to have to relocate anyway and that building's going to kind of be worn out at that point. So, you know, the worst I'm going to do is I'll give it back to the landlord after 30 years and, and give him a building along with it. Or maybe we'll negotiate, I'll take the building away. Okay, so you can have a lease just to build the building. So a lot of different kinds of leases. You can have leases, for example, for uh, office space, you know, where you're going to rent an office for one year, two years, five years. If you're a dentist or a doctor, you know, when you think about it, you may very well have a practice. Your patience is going to take you a while for your patients to learn how to get to your office. And so what you're going to do is you say, well, I don't know how well I'm going to do. I'm going to work real hard. I may eventually want to relocate or do some, you know, something <clears> along that line. So I'm not going to buy the building. I'm just going to, I'm going to lease my space. And when I do it, I'm going to re- lease it for five years because I don't want the landlord to kick me out after a year. I'm going to put a lot of money into putting up sheetrock and walls and wallpaper, and I want to get the full use out of that, not counting putting in the, the sinks and the, you know, and the chairs and every, you know, the, the dental chairs and everything. So anyway, you could have it for that. You could have it for retail space where you're going to rent, lease uh, to put your coffee shop in for three or five years or your ice cream parlor or your hardware store. So there's a lot of different types of leases or times. Okay, the next one is, is where you have an estate from period to period. Again, that period to period could be month to month, week to week, year to year. Okay, uh, That's typically considered to be a rental type of an agreement. What it essentially means is that you agree I'm going to rent for on a month-to-month basis. And uh, what will happen is, is that we're both agreeing that I'm going to rent on a month-to-month basis. There's going to be an agreement where there's an expectation that I'm going to pay the rent by the first of the month. If I don't pay the rent by the first of the month, the landlord can charge me, you know, will give me a grace period of time, but can, you know, actually literally charge me a fee for not paying after a period of time. In other words, I have a written agreement with them. Okay, so that's period to period. A state at will means that I have a, an agreement and we will continue that agreement as long as we both want to do that. Okay, in other words, we are going to continue to agree to rent. It doesn't necessarily have to be in writing. Okay, in fact, some lease agreements, some rental agreements, especially like lease agreements, I've seen this happen. In fact, I've been involved with these things, you know, where you lease something out from, from, you know, to somebody, and at the end of that period of time, they say, you know what, I need another couple months. And maybe you don't actually even sit down and make out a formal agreement. You'll just say, oh, you need another month to rent? Go ahead and rent. That's not a problem. Just send me a check. And if they tell me they're going to rent, and they send me a check, and I accept the check, then I have a contract, okay? It's verbally. It's not in writing. It's verbally. Typically, rental agreements could be possibly, could possibly, not should be, but could possibly be oral. Typically, lease agreements are in writing because there's some contractual thing that we need to put down in writing. The next, the last one that they talk about is something called an estate at sufferance. Now, an estate at sufferance, and I think, let me see if I can find out um, where that is in here because it's kind of interesting when you read it. Okay. And the stated sufferance, and I'll read this to you because it sounds sort of terrible, but in reality it's not. And the stated sufferance occurs when a leasee, that's the person leasing the property, this uh, leasee, 
who has rightfully come into possession of the land, meaning that they didn't squat on it, they didn't take it over. They, in other words, they had the landlord's permission. They signed a lease agreement. Retains possession of the uh, after the expiration of his or her term. So here's what this essentially means in the beginning. I have something where I've rightfully had the permission of the landlord to move in, maybe like a lease agreement. I've been paying my money. I've had a date in which I'm supposed to move out, but I've stayed there beyond that date. And you may say, well, wait a minute. You mean the guy's a bum and he doesn't want to pay you know, his monthly payment? So no, what we mean is in a good example, this would be, you know, like I said before, you have a lease agreement. The tenant has come to town. They have signed the lease agreement. They're supposed to be out on May 1st. Their intention was rent the house for you from you for a year. The expectation was at the end of that year, their new house would be built. Uh, those of us that have been through that in the past know that that doesn't always happen all the time. That the ten- In fact, it always used to make me laugh because a lot of my tenants used to actually move to town with the idea in mind they were either going to buy or build. You know, and they'd stay there for you know like a year. And they're sitting there telling me how, hey, no problem, I'll be out by May 1st. And I'm thinking in the back of my mind, if you are, you'll be the first one I've ever had that's done that. Mainly because they haven't taken into consideration things like, uh, you know, like uh, bad weather, okay, the rains, labor problems, material problems. I mean, I'm going through right now as an example, great company, no problem with the company, but we're having a mirror put in, in the bathroom. This is a mirror that goes from the, you know, from the top of the sink to the ceiling and it's the whole thing. The excellent company, done business with them for years, you know, excellent company. What happened is they came out, they measured for the mirroring, they edited, uh, measured for the mirror, went out, ordered the mirror. The guy gets to the place, to my house, or to the house that I have this, this rental to put it in, takes one look at it and finds out it's scratched on the back. <laughs> so he says, oh, well, instead of putting it up, why don't we go ahead and, you know, we'll send it back. I'm sorry, blah, blah, blah. Goes and orders another one. Same thing, comes to the house, thinks everything's okay, starts to notice a bunch of other scratches. This time he goes and puts it up because he feels bad about the fact of delaying putting the mirror up. So then he orders he orders the third one. He orders the third one. I get a phone call, you know, from the the uh, person that's scheduling. It says, oh, by the way, you know, you know, Sam will be there. Is it okay if Sam comes by, you know, who's the installer? I said, no problem. And uh, what ends up happening is I have my son check because he's the one that's running from me. Kind of find out that Sam couldn't put it in because guess what? The mirror, the new mirror, is scratched again. So in other words, this has no effect on you know excellent company, outstanding company, does great work, but the supply of their materials had an effect on that getting done. Okay, so we've taken something that maybe would have taken maybe uh, literally a week to turn this whole thing around from the time you order it to the time you receive it. Now it's almost over a month. So <laughs> it's, it's not uncommon that you have those problems when you're building houses for cabinetry, floors, materials, roofing, on and on. So what will happen is the tenant wants to stay there at where, they're, where, where they're renting from you longer. And what will end up happening is they may call you on the phone and say, hey, you know, Pat, listen, you know, and they tell you what the story is. And maybe if you don't have somebody that's already committed to move in, you say, go ahead, stay. Okay, so they've stayed. They rightfully came into it. They've stayed. The minute they send me the check and I agree and sign that or deposit that check, then they we go on a, what, a estate period to period or month to month. That's an estate at sufferance. They've stayed beyond the period of time. Uh you know, beyond the agreement, I've allowed them, and that's what the last part of this is. It says here, 
And the stated sufferance occurs when a lessee who has rightfully come into the possession of the land retains possession after the expiration of his or her term. In other words, the tenant does not leave after the expiration of the lease. And the stated sufferance does not require notice of termination because the expiration of the lease is the automatic termination. The if the landlord accepts any payment of rent, the lease reverts to a periodic tenancy. Okay? So that's typically how something like that would work and would be completely lawful and ethical and everything else. Okay? Uh, let me see where I am with uh, everything before I keep jumping all over the place to show you this. Okay. Uh, that was two. Okay. This is the part that talked about the estate at will, okay, which was right above it. And the last thing I want to talk before I jump on is what are the minimum requirements for a lease or a rental property? Okay. The certain things had to be in place. Okay. So it says, as long as there is an intent to rent property, the creation of a lease requires no particular language. So in other words, me putting in there that you can or cannot paint the bathrooms or bedrooms or that you can or cannot sublease it or whatever, there's no specific language I have to fulfill to have a lease. It just has to be the intent that I want to rent. So it requires no particular language. It can be either written or oral, Okay. A lease or rental agreement must, at a minimum, include these four factors. Number one, we need to talk about the length or the duration of the lease. So you need to know how long it's going to be for. So there's an expectation of it's month to month. I'm going to rent at the beginning of the month, be out at the end of the month. Lease agreement, rent the begin, lease the beginning of this of May, be out next year in May. Number two, we need to know what the amounts of the rent are. How much is the rent? You know, we, you know, you can't say to somebody, oh, by, you can't tell them we have a rental agreement and then just let them know at the end of the month and say, well, for this month, I thought it was going to be $400. You need to know, in other words, you have to agree to that up front ahead of time. Number three, you need to know who the parties are that are involved in the lease. Who's the lessee? Who's the lessor? Who's the lessee? Okay? You need to know who they are. And you need to have a description of the property. And we are not talking about a, le uh, a legal description here either. We're talking about a common, everyday, you know, common address, like 123 Main Street. Okay? You need to have those things in place in order for you to have a lease agreement. Then it goes beyond there. It just says leases for one year or less do not need to be in writing, but makes good business sense to have all the real estate agreements in writing. I'm here to tell you that probably anything that you're going to enter into in an agreement, it is a good idea to put it in writing, hammer out the issues and the contractual requirements before you get involved. In other words, don't be in a situation where, you know, you rent a place to somebody and you have not told them. Now I'm talking about the way the real world operates. In the real world, you want to have a written agreement. You want to specifically identify all the contractual requirements of the lease. You want to make darn sure that everybody understands what's going on ahead of time. So that consequently, if there ever is a disagreement, you can go back and say, remember that lease agreement or that rental agreement that we spent a lot of time going over? Remember paragraph two? I showed that to you. Okay, this is why I'm charging you this late fee because you did not pay it. Or this is why I'm charging you money for the garage door opener because you're supposed to pay it if you lose it. You know, you need, or remember how in the agreement it says that you can't paint a room without my permission. That's why 
when you painted the room purple with pink polka dots, I want the room back in the condition it's supposed to be because you agreed to that. Okay, you want to have all that in writing. That way, if you know you're going to have any kind of a disagreement with the tenant or the tenant's going to have a disagreement with the landlord, you get it out front. And maybe the result of that would be, you know, the landlord's an idiot. I'm going to go rent someplace else. You know what I mean? That might be the result of that. But that's good to know now than it is to know later. Okay? Um, okay. Under the statute of frauds, any lease lasting more than one year from the date of the signing must be in writing. Okay, that's the statute of frauds. And we'll talk about the statute of frauds. The whole point of the statute of frauds is to try to prevent fraud. Fraud meaning that somebody is, you know, in other words, uh, you know, you, you show somebody one thing, but you do something completely different, fraudulent. You know, like a fraud, fraud would be something like here's a brand new car with a brand new um, engine in it. And you come to find out after after you buy the car, that is not a new engine. That was a can of spray paint. <laughs> it looked nice, and it was washed. It was fraud. You told somebody that it was a brand-new engine, but it's not a brand-new engine. You lied. That's, a, that's fraud, okay? So the statute of frauds is trying to prevent that from happening by saying, hey, if it's in writing, that way it will help protect the, or prevent fraud prevent people from lying in the contract, or I at least have a way to go back and say, you agree, you said that this was true in writing. Now we're finding out you're lying about it, and we want to kill the contract as a result of that. Okay? Um, so in a set your forwards, longer than one year from the date of the signing. Remember, the date of the signing is the date that you signed the contract. You may sign the contract today, but not actually start it for maybe another month or two. As an example, when you... It's not uncommon when you rent out property that the tenant comes to you. You know, you run your little ad in the paper or you put your, however you market your, your, the property to, to the potential tenants. They call you. They come and take a look at it. You go ahead and get a rental application. Maybe you sign all that paperwork, okay? You sign all that paperwork today, but maybe they don't actually physically move in and start the lease for maybe another month. And you may say, well, why would they do that? Well, it's not uncommon that people are moving into the community or maybe moving out of someplace else. <laughs> so during that period of time, it's, it's been my experience that usually I will sign the lease agreement with them maybe a month or a month and a half ahead of time so that now I know I've got at least the tenant that lives there that's living renting from me now or leasing from me now knows that you know we're going to terminate uh, you know, at the end of that period of time, they know for sure they have to move out, and the other person that's going to rent knows that they can now have a place to live and they can give their existing landlord notice that they're going to move. So it all depends, you know. But that date is the date that we sign all those contracts. That's what we're talking about, including that time frame in there. Okay? So it's from the date of signing must be in writing. California courts have held that in the event the lease is, is written, it must be signed by the lessor. It is not necessary for the lessee to sign the lease has been delivered to and accepted the lessee. The payment of rent and possession of the property is sufficient acceptance. So in other words, if the tenant, the landlord is required to pay, if the tenant takes and accepts and moves into the premises and pays the rent, then you have the agreement, okay? By that very nature, that act is what we're talking about, okay? Okay, so anyway... The, I'll finish that one paragraph off. It just says the payment of rent and possession of the property is sufficient acceptance. Hotels, motels, and other types of lodging fall into this category. 
uh, of leases, even though the duration of use may be for a month, shorter time, a month may be for much shorter time, and the eviction or termination is handled differently for those from the daily weekly rentals. Okay, so it's just the idea that they're not signing. When you think about it, when you go to a hotel or motel, you, you know you're signing an agreement. In some cases, it might it might be an agreement that stipulates everything. In a lot of cases, it's just something saying you're going to rent this room. Okay, and then say, oh by the way, follow those rules that are posted on the wall. <laughs> okay, all right. Take care of that. Okay. All right. What I want to do now for a minute is to go in here, if I can find it, and talk about a residential lease agreement. I am by no means going to go over every single solitary paragraph, but I'm going to point out a couple things that I think are important that you would know about. First of all, I want you to notice that at the top of this, that this agreement was prepared for and by the California Association of Realtors. So I'm going to kind of zoom in on this and zoom back out again. Now, what's important about this, in my opinion, is the fact that you want to make darn sure that you are using a current legal document when you sign something with a land, between a landlord and tenant. You may say, well, how, how do you come up with that? All I'm saying is, is that the laws change. And what the California Association of Realtors do is that they have attorneys. I've heard stories that there are six or eight of them that take a look at all the various forms and documents that are utilized by all the realtors constantly. So they look at listing agreements. They look at purchase offer agreements. They look at rental agreements. They look at all these agreements to make sure that they reflect the current language. What you don't want to do is have where the law has changed and your documents are out of date and find out that you can no longer enforce those things because you're trying to enforce a law that may or may not be current or legal. Okay? So you want to keep that in mind. You, uh, you know, in my opinion, you always want to use a document that's up to date and current. In fact, what the association does is that you can use get these forms and do them online. You can also have software that you can actually create them, you know, type them, you know, on the computer and it prints them out. And the big advantage to that is the fact you don't have to carry huge amounts of these forms, you know, where you go to a client's house and you're walking in there with a wheelbarrow full of various kinds of forms. A lot of uh, realtors today are keeping all of these on uh, computer. And those forms, just as a sidelight, there's two programs to that. There's one called WinForms, which is the program that actually allows you to fill the forms out. And then the way that California Association of Realtors updates those forms is they give you updated forms that you can go and download, okay, again, to make sure they're the most current. So that's why I want to emphasize the fact that you really, really need to make sure you use the most current document. Next thing is, is over here, notice that this happens to be a residential it's not commercial. It's, a re it's, it's built or designed for residential use. So it's going to use words in it like residential. It's not going to talk about office space or stuff like that. It's going to talk about residential. But notice that it says it's a residential lease or month-to-month -month agreement. So this agreement solves both of those issues. And as you'll see in a minute, it depends upon what box you check as to whether it is a month-to-month -month or a lease agreement. Um, I'm going to kind of zoom out here for a minute. Or I'm actually going to move over here, and I'll tell you a little bit about what goes in here, okay? Um, the first part of this is talking about the property. I'll zoom out as much as I can without keeping it in here, okay? 
And so what it is is it starts out by just saying that the landlord rents to the tenant and the tenant rents from the landlord the real property and improvements described as and you describe where they're located, like 123 Main Street, Sacramento, California, zip code, whatever. The premises are the sole use and personal residence of the following pers persons. This is where you would describe the names of the people that are entering the, the agreement. It would be typically, if it's a rental agreement, like a family. And the reason why that becomes important when it comes to a rental agreement is what you want to do is that if you're renting a house to somebody, a home, a condominium, a townhouse, whatever, what you want to do is say, I am renting it to you, you and your husband or you and your wife and your two children. This is not a rooming house. It's not a place that you rent out to anybody that happens to come by. These are the people that live there. Okay, that's why we want to do that. Okay. It also talks about personal property, any personal property that may be included in the lease. Personal property might be, um, it says the following personal property maintain a pursuit of a paragraph and it defines a paragraph that would go with their lease agreement. That could be something else that we consider to be personal property, such as refrigerator, washer, dryer, uh, dishwasher, things that are not a, permanently attached to the real property that people would rent. It's not uncommon, for example, for people to rent an apartment and have a refrigerator or not have a refrigerator. In fact, it's been my experience personally that if I'm renting an apartment out to somebody, I usually will rent it with a refrigerator because it's fairly small and it's a pain in the neck to get it to fit. And if you've ever gone out and bought a refrigerator, they're typically kind of hard to find. And usually people that are renting an apartment really don't have the money in some cases, to own their own refrigerator and their own washer and their own dryer. You know, usually it's people that own a home by that time have now got the financial wherewithal to own those things, okay, plus the fit, okay. Um, people that rent a house, on the other hand, you know, a family that rents a house usually comes with a lot of stuff. You know, they got stuff. They've got washers, dryers. They've got uh, refrigerators, freezers, beds. They've got a lot of stuff. Okay, that are usually renting a house. In fact, that can kind of get to be, uh, I remember I had some tenants one time that rented from me. Their intention, the reason why they rented from me, their intention was they were going to rent for, I think it was six months or a year. What they were doing was building a brand new house. They had moved out of a house that had to be, I think it was 3,500 square feet. It was a husband and wife. They also had about three or four kids. Really nice family. And what they did is they moved out of this 3,500-square-foot house. They were going to move into a house they were building that was over 4,000 square feet. But the house they were renting for me was only 1,800 square feet. Guess where everything went? In the garage. Everything they could possibly get went in the garage. And I remember this really clearly because after they moved in, the first thing that broke and hadn't broken in years was the garage door opener. And I had to change the garage door opener with all that stuff in there. So to take a job that would have taken me maybe an hour to do took me about six hours trying to get up around where all this stuff was to do it. So again, you know, knowing, you know, people that rent houses typically have more stuff than people that rent apartments. That's all I'm really saying. So that's why you supply more personal property with them. Right down here is where you select whether they're going to have a month-to-month -month lease or they're going to have uh, a month-to-month -month or a lease. Okay, that's where you select it. Okay. Um, this down here is the paragraph where it says what the what the uh, rent's going to be. This is the tenant agrees to pay whatever the rent per month. Okay. Now another thing I want to emphasize is that if you're the landlord renting property out, 
What I highly recommend that you do is that once you've met with the client or the tenant and you're taking a rental application, in other words, you're serious. This person is somebody that's really, you know, as long as everything comes out in the rental, you know, rental application in the background check, you know, the credit check and everything, you're going to rent to them. I recommend that, that you make a, have a copy and leave that lease agreement with them and say to them, this is maybe not the final one, but what I want you to do is go through here and make sure that you understand everything. If you don't understand anything or there's some paragraph in here that's kind of a little blurry, just highlight it or mark it, and we'll talk about it because I really want you to understand what it is that you're getting yourself involved with. You know, sometimes that may sound, that initial approach like that may sound scary to them because they say, you know, I talked to a lot of other people and they never did that with me, but what I want to do is I want to make sure they understand it. I just don't want them signing stuff and getting all done with signing it, and then, you know, six months later something happens and they go, well, I didn't know that that was covered in the agreement because that causes a problem, you know. And if they get upset with you, then that can cause problems on your side because sometimes a tenant can just become a tweaky little bit uncooperative, which they can be a pain in the neck. You know, you, they're moving out, and they don't have to let you in. They don't have to. That's not a requirement, you know, for you to be able to come in there and fix a couple things before they move out. And if you really tweak them, they can tweak you. They can make your life a nightmare. So you want to keep that good working relationship with the tenant at all times. That's why I think it starts with this agreement. Uh, again, this talks about rent in advance, talks about the date we're going to start, talks about where the rent should go to. This paragraph here talks about things like security deposit. One thing with security deposits I really want to tell you is that you really need to do take care of those dead serious-like. Um, when a tenant moves in, I don't care no matter what it is, when a tenant moves in, you should be walking around <clears throat> with that tenant and walking in every single solitary room and opening and closing every single solitary door, drawer. That should not only be a place where they have an ability to check and see if there's any problems with the property, but you should also be thinking about how to show them any things on how to operate equipment. So this could be integrated. It might be this is how you run the, the process to clean the oven. This is how the garbage disposal works. This is how the dishwasher works. These are how the lights function. Why is that important? I not only show them, but I say, here, I want you to turn them off. <laughs> because would, that can cu cut down on problems because they understand, you know, how that gizmo functions, if you will. Okay? Why, how do you turn the fan on for the range? You know, that kind of a thing. But at the same time, you want to have a sheet like a, we call a move-in checklist. And you want to go through and be checking this off. And as if you go in a room and there's a stain on the carpet, you want to annotate it. If there's a hole in the door or wall, you want to annotate You want to annotate all that stuff. You want to get that stuff fixed right away. And you want to get it in writing that it has been fixed. Now, that same document, when they get ready to move out, guess what? You, do, you repeat the same process. They say, I'm ready to move out. No problem. We had the carpets clean. The walls are painted. Everything's cleaned up. You take the same checklist, and you walk through the house. And you look at the condition. You say, well, there was no hole in the wall here. There is one now. Okay? Uh, the carpet did not have a stain. Now it does. This, by the way, in case you haven't heard it, this is where the tenant will talk to you about something called normal wear and tear. And normal wear and tear to you as a landlord, normal wear and tear to the tenant are two different things. You know, you have an expectation that if you put brand new carpeting in, that that should be that you know when you when they move out, it should be cleanable. You know, be able to be do a Stanley steamer job on it, and it stain you know gets cleaned up, and the stains don't come back like a week later. You know, pretty good condition. Their definition is 
well, you know, my son rode the bike through the house. Yes, there are some track marks in the carpet, but that's normal wear and tear because, you know, while we weren't here for a year, we were here for maybe three years, and that's kind of normal wear and tear. That's normally what my son would have done if I had a house. And you go, <laughs> and you're back and forth about this stuff, you know. So I'm here to tell you, uh, you, you know, you really do want to make sure you understand that. So it's security deposits. When you collect a security damage deposit, how much of that they get back is totally dependent upon how close the house is to the condition it was when you rented it out. If you have to go and spend extra money to get the carpet cleaned or replaced because of the fact that it's damaged, then that's something that's going to come out of this deposit. Uh, you know, if, if if the walls need to be repainted, all those things need to be done. Now, what you do is you have a period of time in which you have to get it done. You have to itemize all the things that you have done. I always recommend, and I think it's even law, that you have to produce the bills to show them where the money went. You know, I spent $300 for Stanley Steamer to clean that carpet. I spent $200 for uh, Pat Hogarty, the painter in the community, to paint that room. Okay, you need to show that where their money went. Now, what will happen is what you remit back to them is you take the grow, you know, what they gave you minus the, you know, all the things that you had to correct, and then they get a check back for that amount of money. Okay, but you need to document everything to them. And that's why it's always important, too, to kind of maybe do some of that stuff ahead of time so that if it's something that could be corrected by the tenant, that's another issue. Make sure that they do it to your I had a God. I could go on for hours about. I had a tenant. If you've ever seen those hollow doors, you know that you know that uh, you have for a closet. You know most except the only door that's usually required by law to be solid, completely solid, either wood or metal, either one, is the door that goes to the garage. Okay, and the reason why is that protects. Hopefully, gives you enough time to protect if there's a fire because you know cars can catch on fire, have a short in the car, and the fire catches on, or the car catches on fire, and it's to give you enough time for the fire to stop from coming in the house. Notice I said enough time to get out, but not to prevent it from getting in the house. The other doors that are used in the house are usually hollow. Many of them are hollow in the center. Well, I've seen where tenants should say something like, oh, by the way, there's, there's a hole in the door there, and they'd say, no problem, I'll take care of that. Okay, and you didn't think anything more about it. You're, in your mind, you think that means go down to, the, to, to Home Depot, buy the door, buy the stain, sand it, stain it, make sure it matches, and put the door back on. That's what you think it means. What they mean, or what they think, is, oh, I'll take the door off, reverse the door hangers, and put it back on so now the hole doesn't face the bedroom, it faces the closet, if you follow what I mean. So you could see, you could stand in the room and see the hole in the door, you know, because the the, the door, the hole, because it's a, uh, got a, a space in between, you got a hole on one side of the door, but not on the other. So you think, replace the door. They think, oh, no, replace it. Just reverse it. It's just to get rid of the eyesore. Have I seen that happen? Yeah. Have I had it happen to me personally? Yes, I have. So just so you know. Okay, so anyway, security damage deposit. Okay, notice down the bottom here is that you have a number of different forms and the date. This happens to be page one of six. Okay? And I know we can't read this, but I would recommend on, you know, they give you all of these other parts of the form. And the reason why I'm, I'm kind of emphasizing this is because you as the agent need to know and be able to explain all of these different items. You need to be prepared, ready, willing, and able to explain it. Because some clients will take 
and read this document and take one glance at it and sign it. And even if you sat there and said, listen, I'm going to give you an exam at the end. If you don't pass the exam, I'm not going to rent to you. They still wouldn't read the whole document. But then you'll get another person that will come in, typically engineer type, accountant type, that will read the entire document. And not only have questions about that, but have also, I love the ones with the scenario. Like what happens if it's 12 o'clock at night and my son gets mad at the kid next door and throws a rock, you know, through the, you know, that kind of a scenario. It makes me kind of a little bit afraid because maybe the kid's done that. But anyway, you want to know what these are. There's things like late charges, how we're going to handle late charges, how we're going to handle things like parking and storage. Parking is important. Because of the fact that, you know, we mostly think that if we're going to rent a house, that we're going to park in the driveway. But I'm here to tell you that, you know, a lot of times, especially as families get larger, you have a husband and wife that have a car. Typically, if they're going to rent from you, they don't have enough room to put anything in the garage because guess what? It's going to take them a couple of years to figure out what to do with that extra furniture because it doesn't fit, so it stays in the garage. The kids now, maybe they're 16, 17 years old, they have their own car only to find out that you can't park your car in the street because the homeowners association won't let you do it. Or if you have an apartment, you can't do that because of the fact that they're only going to give you one space per apartment or two spaces per apartment. So you need to talk to them about parking, okay, so that they're aware of it, what the rules are, because you will be the one that will get the phone call after a while or get the notice if they're parking in the street and they're not supposed to, okay? And they'll get angry with because you never told them. Uh, same thing with things like storage. You need to talk about storage. Some places come with storage. They'll have a small little storage area or maybe a common storage area, but you need to talk about if there are any kind of storage area where they can put stuff. If you have a house that has additional uh, storage space, like for a uh, recreational vehicle, a boat, whatever, you need to tell them about that. They may rent from you just because you have that space, because they have a trailer. Okay. Uh, utilities is another thing you want to know. You want to know what utilities you're going to pay for and what utilities they're going to pay for. Typically, what ends up happening, the way I like to think about it, is anything they have direct control and can consume, they're going to pay for. So things like electricity, they're going to pay for that. Phone bill, they're going to pay for that. Cable TV, they're going to pay for. Okay. Uh, if they're renting a house, they're going to pay for their own garbage. Okay. Now, if they're renting a house from you, you may, you may want to maybe end up paying the water. Why? Because you spent a lot of money to have all the landscaping done, and you don't want them to look at the bill and go, oh, my God, $100 for a water bill for the month. John, don't turn the water on anymore. Not realizing that you spent, and if you don't believe me, it's not difficult. Go down and price some of those plants out. You have a lot of plants there, and you're, you're talking about beginning plants. You know, you talk, you buy it as a one-gallon plant. Now it's a five- or ten-gallon plant. It's a very expensive thing. You start talking about replacing those with the lawn dyes. So you may very well say, you know what, I'll pay for the water. I'll take care of the water. Or you may say, I'll take care of the water, and I'll have a, a gardener take care of the landscaping. If you have the water bill, guess what? In most cases, you're probably also going to be responsible for the sewer bill because you, they don't have a meter on the sewer. What they do is they look at the consumption of the water, and then, therefore, they have an idea on how much to charge you for the sewer. Okay, okay maintenance. Maintenance is another thing. You're going to want to know how to handle maintenance. Uh, typically, what will happen in a lot of cases is that the tenant will call you and say, this doesn't work or that doesn't work. Sometimes you may find somebody that can do their own work. I highly recommend, though, that you make sure that they understand how to do the work. 
know, they may say, oh, no, no problem. The sprinkler doesn't work. I'll go out and I'll, I'll, I'll go get the parts. I kind of find out the guy's a nice guy, but he doesn't know how to do that work. And you end up getting a call. Listen, there's a big flood in the house. You know, you know, you have to know what the person can do. I've had people that will call you up, say there's a problem with the sprinkler, I'll fix it. The cost of the materials is $5. Can I take it off the rent? And they know what they're doing. You have other people who don't know how to do that stuff, okay, or other people don't want to do it. So you need to know how to handle the maintenance. One thing with maintenance, though, you need to always react to whatever the tenant calls you. The tenant calls and says, i got a problem. You need to either go over there or get somebody over there or acknowledge their problem right away. Because some of those things can turn into a nightmare. As an example, a toilet that leaks, okay, will eventually, if it continues to leak, cause dry rot and fall through the floor. So you may very well want to get over there and fix something that's only going to cost you 10 or 15 or $20 to prevent you from putting out $5,000 for a carpenter to replace all the floor beams underneath the house. Okay, so you want to kind of use some common sense to go with that. This one here is talking about just neighborhood conditions. Okay, pets is another thing. Pets, people will rent with pets, without pets. I'm here to tell you that pets can be a problem. Um, uh, one of the examples I like to use, which is a true statement, I had a friend of mine. He bought two duplexes. I think it was in Carmichael. This is years ago. The duplexes, he bought them because they were fixer-uppers. He was kind of one of those guys, maybe hadn't done it on a regular basis, but retired and had a lot of time on his hands and was going to do this, and he was sort of handy. So the weather, he was going to be going out of town, so was the first thing he's going to do is the windows, and three of these were broken. There was one window, one place that was actually rented out, and they had a tenant there. The other three needed windows. So what did he do? Looks at the weather, says, hey, you know, it may rain. Calls up the glass guy, has him come out and fix all the windows. Closes the door. Goes out of town for about three days, comes back, goes to open the door Monday morning, Tuesday, whenever he gets back, goes to open the door and practically darn near knocks him straight on the ground. What had happened is, is that the people that had lived there, you know, which he had never met, he was buying something, he was a fixer-upper, had had animals. Well, animals do something called go to the restroom <laughs> sometimes. And it had all been absorbed into the floors and into the carpeting, into the padding. Okay, so 10 minutes later, as he tells the story, he's, he's got the carpeting and the padding laying out front. You know, animals will cause smell and odor, and a lot of people are very sensitive to that. You will have tenants that will say, I cannot, I don't know why poor cats get a bad rap, but I cannot be about around cat hair because it just affects, you know, my kids are allergic to it or my, you know. I think cats seem to be more of a problem than dogs. Dogs, you know, I don't know, maybe because dogs are nicer to us. You know, they're our buddy. You know, they're, they're not temperamental. Okay, but pets are another issue. Uh, rules and regulations. Are there any rules and regulations uh, that need to be aware of? Are you in a condominium complex where you need to be aware of condominium rules, such as when the pool, you can use the pool, the tennis courts, the parking situation, on and on and on? Alterations and repairs, okay? You do not, under any circumstance, want the tenant to ever do any kind of alterations or repairs without your authorization, period. There are people that think, I mean, there are people that know how to do a lot of that stuff, and then there are people that will do things, and their whole experience and knowledge base on doing the repair work is the commercial they saw on how, how easy it was to replace a garage door opener 
on the Sears commercial, only to find out it's not as easy as it may appear to be. Or they get up there and don't understand what those different color wires mean, and they go to put a fan up or a light fixture up, and they think, oh, well, I just kind of put a twist this thing around all the wires. They turn the circuit breaker or turn the switch on, and the next thing you know, there's smoke and fire coming out of the ceiling. You know, They don't understand that those wires have a significance, especially if the wires are different colors that don't make a lot of sense to them. Like, you know, you look up there and there's no white wires. They're all black wires. But there is a neutral and a, a hot wire and a neutral, and they don't know, and they just don't know what to do with it. And they blow the, blow the fan right off the ceiling. Uh, locks and keys... Okay, need to know about that. Entry, okay, when the landlord can come into the property. Typically, what you're going to find out is, is the landlord needs to have the permission of the tenant. Except, and we'll talk about the next time, certain situations, such as if it's an emergency or they think it's abandoned or whatever, but you do not rent it out to somebody and then just think you can come and go as you please. You have to have the people's permission. They have the same expectation of the use of that property as if they owned it themselves. They need to have you knock on the door, get permission, ask if it's okay. Okay. If you don't, it's called harassment, and they can terminate the lease because of that. Um, signs, um, you know, talking about signs for sales, signs for lease signs, assignment and subletting. This essentially is letting the tenant know, you know, that you are not going to allow them to sublease. Sublease would be where you initially rent the property out, your name's on it, we checked your credit, we looked at your income level, your jobs, you move in, and then you live there for three or four or five months, and you say, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move out because I'm going to go someplace else, I'm going to lease it to somebody else. Sublease. Okay? You see that especially like in some areas where you have rent control, where you know, if, you, if, you don't, if you're not the one on the lease, what will happen is they can raise the, the lease rent, uh, their lease payments. So... You just need to realize the fact that you're letting the tenant know that, you know, you cannot sublease it and you cannot assign it to somebody else without talking to me, period. Okay? End of discussion. And if you do, that's a violation of the contract and we can terminate the contract. Okay? Okay. Um, let me see. I could go on forever about this. It's not that it's one of my favorite topics. It's just that if you do it enough, you have. This is talking about some disclosures such as... Uh, Lead-based paint, okay. Uh, military ordinance, you may find out that if you're moving into an area, maybe it was used by a military base at one time. Is there any live ordinance that are laying around? You know, when they shoot those, drop those bombs and shoot those guns, there's times when they don't necessarily go off, you know, when they're there. Uh, this is disclosure for child abuse, the, the uh, database for child abuse. Uh, possession, tenants' obligations, this down here talks about breach of contract or early termination. In other words, if you have to terminate it because there's a breach, breach means somebody didn't live up to their obligations. Okay. <clears throat> Temporary relocation, damage of the premises, how you handle that. Insurance. One of the things that I always do with insurance is to make sure that the tenant understands that their belongings are not covered under my insurance. And I make sure I put that in the agreement and they're aware of that. That if the house burns down, if they don't have insurance, which is typically called renter's insurance, their their property's gone. And the reason why is I can't I I can't buy insurance for them because I have no. In fact, that's a famous uh, legal LSAT question to go to law school. It's because I have no insurable interest. 
It's the same thing like me going up to you at the airport and saying, oh, by the way, can I buy a life insurance policy on you in case the airplane crashes? You know, it's the same situation. <clears throat> I have no insurance. There's nothing I'm going to lose, me personally, you know, as far as your property goes. If, you're, if the house burns down, I lose the house. I lose the income from the house. But I don't, in reality, lose any money based on your couch that burned up. So you have to have a rental policy, and you need to be aware of that. Um, water beds is another thing we could go on and on and on about. I don't think they're as popular as they were a number of years ago. But water beds, there was a guy in town that was called Labrie's Water Beds. Some of you that didn't live in Sacramento weren't aware of this. This guy would have shows on in the middle of the night. He sold water beds. It was a big deal. Uh, you know, a couple problems with water beds is, number one, they can leak, okay? And they can, like, leak and leak downstairs or cause damage. Number two, they weigh something. Water weighs, I think, the last calculation, about eight pounds per gallon. So you just knew the math. You know, if you've got 100 gallons that go in the, in the water bed or whatever it happens to be, that could be two, three, four hundred pounds. Your floor may or may not be able to handle that weight. Okay, so that's why you want to be aware of that. And there's people that had special insurance policies to cover that. Um, this just talks uh, about mediation and about how if you do have a dispute, remember there's a difference between mediation and arbitration. What you're trying to do here is to say, um, you know, listen, if we have a problem, let's try to get it worked out without having to go to court. Mediation means we're going to bring somebody in that's going to be kind of like a marriage counselor to kind of help us work out our disputes. Arbitrator is kind of appointing somebody that's going to look at and hear both sides and finally say, you know what? Landlord, you're wrong. Tenant, you're wrong. Pay them. Okay? And their word's final. Um, and after that, you're just signing, um, you know, you're just basically signing the agreement. And I think that that's it, I think, as far as that particular agreement goes, I think. Let me look, double check again. This should be page, oh, page five of six, and I think there's probably one more page. And so what I'm trying to emphasize here is the fact that these are documents that are really, really important. You know, you, know, you, you need to read the whole, the whole set of documents to completely understand what's going on, what you're getting yourself into. The tenant needs to read and understand what they're getting themselves into. One of the things within real estate that you need to be aware of is, is that one of the jobs that you decide that you're going to be in is the creation of contracts, okay, lease agreements, rental agreements, all kinds of agreements. I'm here to tell you that if you don't know what you're doing, wait until the day comes and the judge is standing there and saying, Joe, on this date, did you make this contract out? And you're going to go, God, that stuff comes back to haunt me, doesn't it? Yes, because you need to make sure you understand what's going on with the contract, okay, very, very important. With that, I want to thank you very much for coming, and we will see you back here the next time for show number six.